1: A few weeks ago, we had on a guest that spoke about the new potential therapies for neurological disease, issues like MS and ALS that promised not to just halt the disease or, or, or maybe limit the symptoms, but to actually reverse them because it interfered with the causative kind of strange and elusive agent called an HERV or human endogenous retrovirus that these viruses that were cataloged in the human genome that came back to life upon activation, that lent to human disease. And this was a fascinating episode to me as a molecular biologist that I started to drill down a little further into studying where else may these these human endogenous retroviruses, where they may matter, and what is their history, because we really glossed over that previously. So today we're speaking with an expert at the National Institutes of Health. We have on the podcast today Dr. Nath. He's the clinical director of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the National Institutes of Health. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Nath.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast.
1: I really appreciate you being with me because I've read a number of reviews and I've looked at some of the work that's out there. And I really appreciate the breadth of work that you've been associated with, with respect to different versions of how this, how these HERV or HERV? How did they say that in the parlance of your discipline?
2: So, you know, I'm a neurologist and I uh, got fascinated with these HERVs because they are really retroviruses. And I'd been studying HIV decades uh, when HIV was first discovered. And we found that HIV can cause a dementia-like illness in those infected with the virus. And then by happen chance, I saw a patient who had HIV infection and ALS, And we treated that patient with antiretroviral drugs, and the ALS actually got better. So it turns out that there are several such rare cases published in the literature that seem to have ALS-like syndrome with HIV, and they reverse with antiretroviral drugs. So that sent me looking to see, you know, what is it that is unusual about these patients? And when I started digging in there, I found that a lot of people over... In many years, had been reporting that they can find some kind of retroviral activity in ALS patients, but nobody's been able to figure out exactly what it really was. So we, I had a fair bit of understanding of retroviruses, and I thought that, okay, maybe we should look for an endogenous retrovirus. So we made primers for various endogenous retroviruses that were published in the literature and started looking, and we found that one of them, called the Curve K, uh, was the one that was the most recently acquired in the Unimun genome, and that was uh, quite elevated in patients uh, with ALS when we looked at the autopsy brain tissue. So that set me into trying to understand the biology of these viruses, trying to understand how we acquired them, and what happens to them under physiological conditions and under pathological conditions.
1: So this is really fascinating, and I love this story. Maybe we can drill down on it a little bit more about the HIV patient who received the antiretroviral therapy and cured the ale. We'll come back to that maybe, but can we even go back further? What is a retrovirus? And when we talk about HERVs, when you say oh, it's one of the more recent ones, how, what are human endogenous retroviruses, and how did they get there and
2: when? So it is, nobody knows how life actually started on this planet. One, you know, hypothesis is that it started as an RNA, okay? If it started as an RNA, then you've got to figure out how did you get the DNA? And the only way you can get a DNA is if the RNA is, has to reverse transcribe into a DNA. So you need an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, because normally, we, you know, if you biology 101, people tell you you have the DNA and the DNA then forms RNA and the f- RNA forms protein. However, the reverse can happen too. So RNA can actually form DNA. So if the, you have a situation where you have an RNA and a reverse transcriptase that can form DNA, then that becomes a retro virus of sorts, if it has proteins associated with it and other genes associated with it to make it into a viral particle. In fact, most life forms evolve through retroviruses. Okay. So if you look at it, you know, humans have not evolved for about a hundred thousand years or so. We are exactly the same. We think that we are very different than our ancestors really are not. We just are more privileged than our ancestors. If we took our ancestors out of the cave and you know gave them the Nintendo and the and the fast cars and all that kind of stuff, they will probably do just as well as we are doing today. The, uh, the evolution occurred from chimps to humans by the acquisition of retroviruses. So if you look at evolution of all species, uh, from non-human primates to humans, and the same way if you could trace other species on the planet, what you will find is that every time they jump from one species to another, they acquire retroviral sequences. And these retroviruses are all sexually transmitted. Now you would think that what is the advantage of a virus to be sexually transmitted? What they're trying to do is they're trying to get into the germline, okay? So if a retrovirus now gets into a germline, then what will happen is the next offspring acquires good 10 kilobases of new genome that it never had before. And it will, now the RNA on that virus will reverse transcribe become a DNA And that DNA gets integrated into the existing human chromosome, right? And if it gets integrated at the time of fertilization, then the new offspring that is being formed, that has this new DNA now in all organ systems.
1: Yeah, so when you say sexually transmitted, you mean that they are pushed forward through the germline, that they are passed on from generation to generation and accumulate through generations,
2: Uh, That's absolutely correct. So this is a retrovirus, and it has an RNA, and it has a, a reverse transcriptase. So when it reverse transcribes into the DNA, it will get integrated into the chromosomal DNA. Once it gets integrated into the fertilized egg there, then all cells that are going to get formed from there will have a copy of that genome. Now, what can happen is that copy can now multiply itself into, into the new offspring. So it can cut and paste itself in different areas uh, of the human genome and, and sometimes in cysts, sometimes in trans. And so it can influence nearby genes in many different ways and can form new proteins and, and RNA that weren't there in the, in the uh, species. And hence it will lead to the evolution of a new species.
1: Right? right. there's a lot of good evidence of this that a lot of the traits that are really important that separate us from other organisms or even you know differentiate even you know one plant from another. And I believe even the evolution of speech in, in primates has a retroviral component where this gene, which can move functionally, or viruses that can be inserted into the genome, have the ability to reshape expression of the other genes, genes in the genetic neighborhood. And you get enough of these accumulating in a snowball effect, your generations. And then essentially you lead to speciation. And this is one of the drivers of that process. So is, is that correct?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, Barbara McClintock did the classical experiment in corn, you know, you understand plants a lot better than I do, but that's the only thing I know about plants. <laughs> the discovery of the transposons, and what she showed was that these kernels that have different colors are because the genes will jump, and at that time, nobody believed her. They thought that, you know, you're born with a DNA, and that's basically it, and it never actually changes, but she showed that, no, actually, genes can jump, and when they jump, they can get inserted in a particular area, and it can produce a different color kernel in the same corn, and uh, it took many years before people believed that, but the reason these jumping genes are really all came from retroviruses, so are some elements of a retrovirus, and uh, and that's happening to this day in species, uh, and it happened to humans, and how we acquired these retroviruses over the process of evolution.
1: And I've seen some maps of this, like more more evolutionary trees, that show when the major events occurred, and it seems that that viral retroviral integration and in that some of the major human endogenous retroviral events that you can almost well that you can trace them and really i understand exactly when they occurred in the lineage of primates and so can you do you have any ideas to when many of the really influential or historical ones happened just to give the listener some texture as to when this occurred
2: So we share a number of endogenous retroviruses with non-human primates. So that means that they probably occurred at a time when we had a common ancestor, right? But then there are others that are specific to humans, and you will not find them in chimps. And one of them is this Herve K. And there have been several insertions of Herve K into the human genome over a a million years. But the last one was around 100,000 years or so. So the current human species probably evolved around that time. Now, how people figure that out is a little bit beyond my uh, expertise, but people who know how to date DNA, that's how they figured these things out.
1: <laughs> but, but it's really interesting because you think about the non-human primates accumulating these changes and these changes leading to other I mean, leading to morphological and behavioral changes brain development whatever yes. that ultimately would lead to our evolution as a species and now we see some unusual residues of this that have that are pathological or have some associated pathology when activated and this is what was really elusive to me uh, when I spoke with our previous guest you know there's like a funny black box here. We have these retroviruses that are in the genome. Mm-hmm. How do they turn on?
2: Yeah, so the retroviruses, as I said, are absolutely critical in organogenesis and in fetal development. So what they do is uh, they'll different ones will get activated at different stages of development and they will form the various organs. Once the organ is formed and the cells don't need to divide any longer, you don't want them because if they're going to keep dividing, it's going to form cancer. So they shut down and they've done their job. There's some low level of expression of some of these endogenous retroviruses and people think they may have some physiological function, but the vast majority of them shut down. Now, what will happen is that at some point, let's say they get reactivated. Let's say you have some breast cell or something like that, and you activate these uh, endogenous retroviruses, their job was to make cells divide. So what they're going to do is they're going to push that cell to mitosis. And if they do so, then you're going to get breast cancer, right? And it's been shown that a lot of cancers have activation of various endogenous retroviruses. For example, the HERV k that I study you will find that teratomas, I mean, sorry, testicular carcinomas have very, very high levels that are expressed there. And then you can find it in several other cancers as well. Now, if you do the same thing and now you express it in the brain and particularly in neurons, okay? So if you take an oncogene, you say, okay, now I'm going to push this neuron into mitosis. What's going to happen is the neuron cannot divide, right? You have the cell body up in your brain, and the process goes all the way down into your leg or whatever, and down your spinal cord, and you try to push it into mitosis, it's just going to die, right, because it just cannot divide. So it looks like it's diagrammatically opposite things happening. You have the same etiological agent, which is this endogenous retroviruses. In one cell, it causes cancer. In the other one, it causes degeneration. And but However, it's the same process that's doing both in a different circumstance.
1: Okay, so I think I, I, I get this, but but I guess the, the thing that, that intrigues me about this is that how do you know that it is the Herve K that is causing it to happen rather than a result of it happening?
2: Yes, yes, yes. So you're absolutely right. So the only way to know that is is to shut the HERFK down and see if you impact the course of the disease, right? Now, in cancer, it's been a little bit hard. People have known about these activation of endogenous retroviruses for a very long time. However, what happens is that if it initiates the process in cancer, once the cell starts dividing, it just is a self-perpetuating process. Now, if you even shut it down, you don't impact the course of the cancer. However, in neurodegenerative diseases, what we hope will happen is we think that it is critical in the process of neurodegeneration so that if we were to shut it down, you would stop the downstream pathways. And if so, maybe you will cause arrest of the disease or slow down the progression of the disease. But unless we do that, we would never know for sure.
1: That's really interesting to me because so how many HERVs are there? You mentioned HERV K. And so how many different ones are there, and do they associate with specific diseases?
2: Okay, so there are lots of HERs. The classification of HERs is a little bit complicated, and and it has evolved over a period of time as well. So although I simplistically say HERV-K, there are actually 11 subfamilies amongst HERV-K, and they're called HML1 through HML11. And, and amongst those, the HML2 is the one that we most recently acquired. And then there are, and, and so HERVK is still the most recent, and amongst the subfamilies, the HML2 is even, is the most recent of the HERVKs that we acquired. Now, besides HERVK, k there are a whole host of other HERVs too, but they're a lot more primitive. And so they're not, within the human genome, they are all fragmented. Okay, so you don't have them as complete viral genomes sitting in one place, but you have bits and pieces of them scattered around. So over a period of evolution, once you acquire them, they have these viruses, what happens is that they mutate, and, and there'll be bits and pieces of them scattered around the human genome. So there's Herb H that's been implicated in, for example, renal cancer. There's Herb L. A lot of these things, the other herds don't form proteins. They'll form RNA, but they won't form proteins. No. Yeah. okay but the HERF k has the ability to form proteins all right this is
1: this is even getting more and more intriguing so if you look at so so these are protein these are let me go backwards these are dnas that are in your genome and they comprise you know eight percent of the genome as i recall so yes. a substantial part of the genome and maybe little fragments little bits here and there that maybe are may be expressed as rna or proteins but how do you turn them on? What is it that, and you mentioned that, you know, these associations with cell division, is this something that they're heterochromatinized, meaning like they're locked up in DNA in a way that put away the way the cell kind of stashes its genetic information in ways that can't be expressed, where something causes them to all of a sudden turn on?
2: Yes, you're absolutely right. So there's chromatin remodeling around these things, and uh, also, they're epigenetically silenced. So they are methylated and acetylated. So, but they're very tightly regulated. If they were easy to activate, then the human genome or all life forms would be extinct, right? So, so we tried to see, okay, well, why don't we take some deacetylation agents, put them on neurons, and see if we can activate them. We tried it, and nothing happened. Then we tried some demethylation agents. We said, let's activate it. Nothing happened. He said, you know what? Maybe what we should do is make the neuron toxic, put some toxin on the neuron. Why don't we put hydrogen peroxide so it'll make cause oxidative stress or we'll take NMDA and cause excitotoxicity on it. We tried all these mechanisms. None of them activated herf Then we started doing combinations of things. And we found that, okay, if you now deacetylate and demethylate at the same time, you can activate the herf right? So these things are, it's a, it taught us two things. Number one, that they're very tightly regulated. The second thing is they're not activated through the process of neurodegeneration rather than activation causes neurodegeneration.
1: Okay, so this is kind of interesting. So if, if just for the listeners out there, we talk about demethylation and deacetylation. These are essentially small chemical decorations that are added to DNA that affect its packaging and so frequently when we have genes that we want to silence epigenetically as we say this will happen as a consequence of decoration of dna with these side or not the but decoration of dna and with the histones so the proteins that package dna that these change in ways that maybe make the dna difficult or inaccessible to be able to express and that's where a lot of these latent islands of information or or maybe the ones that are expressed you know, as you're a fetus, but never again in your life, if you're lucky, that's where they put these. So, so what we're looking at in the description here is that these are DNAs that are locked away with certain patterns of, of chemical modification that allow them to not be turned on. Then they are, this is some, also been linked to new viral infection. So What's the role of new viruses or new infections in the role of turning on these endogenous retroviruses?
2: Yeah, you explained that very well. So, yes, it is quite possible that certain other viruses could activate them. So, and perfect. And and a lot of retroviruses share the same transcription factors as well as the same regulatory factors within the cell. Mm And so the example I gave you of a patient with HIV infection who developed ALS, what we found was that in those patients, HERV-K was activated. And when we shut down the HIV, the ALS got better because the HERV-K got shut down. So we said, okay, what is really activating HERV-K in an HIV-infected cell? So we knew that HIV has regulatory proteins, for example, REV and TAT protein, and that TAT is critical for transactivation of HIV. And REV is important for nuclear export of the R. Curve k being a more primitive retrovirus, does not have the TAT protein there or the gene for the TAT protein. And it also is missing a number of other regulatory proteins. So we it took the Curve k DNA and the LTR, which is the regulatory region uh, of the, the promoter region of the virus, and transfected the gene for tat on there along with rev and we found that there was massive activation of Herf K. right so tat alone can do it and if you do tat and rev together you get a synergistic response so that told us that there is crosstalk between these viruses one virus can activate the other
1: <laughs> so this is in tissue culture right so you're, yes. you're you're so you're essentially you're adding you're expressing these these proteins and uh, maybe even delivering these with viruses or transfecting them? Or how are you delivering transfected these?
2: Transfected them. Yeah, just took the plasmid and transfected them.
1: Okay, so so just putting in the plasmid alone and creating this protein awakens these endogenous retroviruses. Yep, yeah, it's correct. <laughs> so, you know, this is a fascinating part of biology that I, I, I just love. I'm so glad we're talking. This is Dr. Avindra Nath. He's a clinical director of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke And we're talking about human endogenous retroviruses, and they're they're very mysterious, yet probably very significant contribution to human disease. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A A-P-P.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Avindra Nath. He's a clinical director at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. And we're speaking about these human endogenous retroviruses, which are parts of all of our genomes. In a way, I don't want to make a bad analogy, but in a way, almost like ticking time bombs. They're there to to make us human, yet at the same time, can also work against us if they become pathological. And these. Latent genes, which can control many important facets of our development, can become active upon new infection. And so when we're speaking with Dr. Nath, one of the ways you you came on my radar was was reading the story of treating an HIV patient, an HIV positive patient who also unfortunately had ALS. And when you treated with antiretroviral drugs, HIV being a human retrovirus, the ALS seemed to subside. So can you tell me more about that particular story? And were you really reversing ALS or just kind of arresting the symptoms?
2: So that is the thing that fascinated me the most. Yeah, I couldn't believe my eyes. The first patient I saw uh, was this young guy. He was a hemophiliac. And uh, he had acquired HIV infection through blood transfusion. And he was in his 20s at the time. And, you know, he'd take his pills and he wouldn't take his pills, you know, was doing fine, and but his viral load was extremely high. So when I, when he developed symptoms of illness, it was progressing really fast. I mean, he was around about Thanksgiving. He said he, there was a he noticed that he couldn't lift the window really well, and by Christmas he was getting weak in both his uh, legs, and so when I. At, suggested to him that he needs to take the antiretroviral drugs on a regular basis. He says, doc, why should I bother now? I mean, I'm going to, I am going. haven't died of HIV all this while. I'm going to die of ALS anyways. So I said, no, uh, there is a case report in the literature suggesting that antiretroviral drugs can actually impact the course in patients who have both of these things. So he took it, and uh, I see him a month later, and all his symptoms were gone. I said, this is absolutely bizarre. I mean, ALS <laughs> never gets better, right? And the neurons that are dead are not going to come back. So how did this guy get better? So now, over a period of time, we then saw several patients. Some got better. Some did not get better. Some actually, their disease slowed down. And they lived for over a decade now that I've followed these patients for a long time. So the difference is, the the critical period is the timing of starting of the antiretroviral. If you were to start it within six months of onset of the symptoms, you can actually reverse the course. If you start it after six months or a year later, you may be able to slow down the progression of the disease. If you start it much more later, you don't impact it at all. So that means that in the early part of the course of ALS, the neurons are not dead yet, but their neurites may be retracting. They are dysfunctional, but not totally dead. And so there's an opportunity to reverse them. That teaches us a lot about garden variety ALS. said so that if you're going to have something that you can impact it, you got to impact it early on. And after that, there's a time comes when neurons start dying. And now it's going to be hard to reverse the process. Well, right? Yeah, but this is really interesting. How old was
1: this patient again?
2: He was in his 20s. Yeah, so, so that's
1: like usually way out of the scope of when ALS was present for physicians.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. That's the other fascinating thing. These patients are fairly young. Right, no. right. So, so, but, but,
1: so at that point, you still have some plasticity, where perhaps a intervention that would allow you to revert neurological disease. And I'm speaking well outside of my ballpark here, as as you know, plant photomorphogenesis expert. Is it seems to me that you, that those neurons have already made a decision, and and they're going to uh, continue this route of either either breakdown or is there really a neurological repair circuit that's realistic? Where you could actually reverse ALS in somebody who was young enough if you caught it early enough.
2: That is absolutely true. Wow. So now you can extrapolate from there. You can say, okay, what if they what about patients who have ALS and do not have HIV? If we were to give them antiretroviral drugs, would they get better or not? Right? Mm-hmm. So so what happened is that we published a paper whereby we looked at all the antiretroviral in culture, that is, and we treated HERV-K with the anti- various antiretroviral drugs and compared to what happens with HIV. And we found that they do have some effect against HERV-K, but not as well as they were effective against HIV itself. Except for one drug, seemed to be actually better against HERV-K compared to HIV, and that's called a backup. So when we published that, and we published our original paper showing that uh, HERF-K can cause an ALS-like syndrome, because we made these transgenic mice with the envelope, and we showed that these transgenic mice develop an ALS-like syndrome, and the herf was activated in ALS patients. There was an infectious disease doc, Julian Gold, in Australia. Uh, he wrote to me. He was in England at that time, and he says, I'm on my way back to Australia, and can I stop by and talk to you because uh, and i said well it doesn't sound like uh, washington dc is on your way back from, <laughs> from london to sydney and i thought he must have some other you know business over here or whatever i said sure come on by and then i thought i would never actually see him but and then i see he's waiting outside my office and i was like oh my god you came all the way here to talk to me about this and so he, what he tried to convince me, he says, it's absolutely, based on your findings, he says, it's absolutely unethical not to treat patients who have ALS with antiretroviral drugs. And he's an infectious disease doc, so he knows that these antiretroviral drugs, you know, we have a lot of experience with them and HIV patients, and the newer ones are fairly safe. Sure. And so he says, it's absolutely unethical. And I said, that's an interesting approach. I tried to convince him it's absolutely unethical to treat patients with antiretroviral drugs, even though that's my own research. (laughs) So the argument I made to him was, I said that, you know what, all the, you can do all the things in culture. You can do all the things in animals and you can do all the experiments. But when you do things in humans, many times you get surprised. And I've, you know, practiced neurology for 40 years and I've participated in all kinds of clinical trials and I know that despite our best intentions, sometimes you can end up hurting people. For example, minocycline. You would say that, you know, it's an antibiotic. People take it for acne. It's very safe. And there was a lot of experimental data suggesting it could be actually helpful in ALS patients. When a proper clinical trial was done, it actually made them worse, not better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can give you multiple examples of these kinds of things where we thought that there's anti-TNF, agent. We thought that this will help multiple sclerosis patients. And there's all kinds of animal models and data, mm-hmm. years and years of work. And then when we finally treated patients with it, they all developed relapses. Same thing with Alzheimer's. We have all these inhibitors of base enzyme and that if you prevent the formation of amyloid, patients will get better. They actually got worse. You know? so, so I told them that, listen, if you're going to do this, you should do it in the context of a clinical trial. Okay. And if you're going to do a clinical trial, you make sure you collect blood and spinal fluid for me because I want to analyze them to see what's happening with HERFK. So he went back to Australia. He cobbled around some money. He actually treated 40 patients. And uh, because it was done on a shoestring budget, he managed to collect some blood, but no spinal fluid. Mm-hmm. So, but he got us the, uh, the serum samples from these patients. We analyzed it and we found, yeah, they had uh, herf levels could be detected in a subgroup of them. And over a period of 24 weeks, the levels of HERFK actually started coming down, but they never came down to zero. They did come down. And when these patients went off the antiretroviral drugs, their levels shot back up again. Within one week, they shot back up. So then we, now it's an open-level study, so one has to take it with a pinch of salt, you know, and it's a small sample size, so that's the caveat. For whatever it's worth, then we looked, we divided those 40 patients into groups, of individuals in whom the hrfk levels came down and there were some patients in whom the hrfk levels never changed or actually went up so we said okay let's compare these two groups and see how did they do clinically so it looks like the ones in which the hrfk levels actually came down their disease did not progress as rapidly as the ones in which the hrfk levels uh, never changed right mm-hmm. So now Julian Gold got very interested. He tried to now convince all the neurologists there that we need to do a bigger and better study, a double-blind study, and uh, and treat patients with the same combination of antiretroviral drugs and actually find out once and for sure whether it has any impact or not. So that's where he stands right now. I think he's managed to convince people. He's managed to get some funding. And he's in the process of starting another. So we'll see uh, what actually comes of it.
1: Well, I have some thoughts on that. So first, and I'll mention this just because uh, Mr. Wooster was my teacher in health class in eighth grade, and he still follows me on Twitter. (laughs) And and Mr. Wooster wrote something on the board one day, and he said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And Mm -hmm. he was speaking with regard to pharmacological effects of drugs. And so this is really what you're speaking about here, that even though you can demonstrate this in tissue culture It's physiological effect, pharmacological effect, whether it's bioavailability, how can it get to the tissues it needs? All that stuff remains to be seen. And that's what's being tested now. But there has been a cohort of people that since the mid-1990s or even early 1990s, the Magic Johnsons and folks like that, that have been receiving intensive antiretroviral therapies on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And do those folks in epidemiological profiles show less evidence of long-term neurological disease?
2: So that's a really good point. Um, the problem is uh, diseases like ALS, they are not reportable diseases. So you don't have good uh, data to be able to extrapolate that. Now, if there was an increase, you would have found that out pretty quickly. People would start reporting. If there's a decrease, it's very hard to figure that out unless you had a reportable illness. Yeah. You know? So I went to the CDC. The CDC has a uh, database and we couldn't figure anything out from there. Julian thinks that in Australia, they should be able to collect data on it, but I don't think he's gotten it either. It's possible that maybe the National Health Service in the UK may be a place to go. ALS is, again, a clinical diagnosis And you have to make sure the accuracy is correct. It's not like you can do a blood test and figure it out that this is what the patient had. So it's a bit complicated in order to do it. But your idea is absolutely correct.
1: It's because it's all it's diagnosed postmortem typically or is uh, how what are the markers that are used to say, yes, this is a confirmed case of ALS?
2: Basically, a neurologist says you have ALS, you have ALS. <laughs> <That's> the... <laughs> so, ALS. So could
1: could ALS have several different layers of different types of neurological pathologies that are related or present the same, yet have very different etiology?
2: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. That's true of most neurological syndromes. Yeah, And um, uh, same is true of Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's. And you think that these diseases are, are and in stone, and exactly a neurologist knows what is what, and that's not really true. I think there, uh, there's a fair bit of heterogeneity to these diseases, and, and unless we understand the genetic basis of these are developed biomarkers, it's going to be very hard to be absolutely certain. But yes, there are a number of familial uh, forms of ALS where genes have been identified, But uh, there's still about 90% of individuals who are sporadic ALS, who don't have a family history. And amongst them, if you look for genes, you'll find another 10% of them, you could probably find a a genetic cause for it. But the 80% of them, you don't find any genetic causes.
1: This is really fascinating. And one of the papers that's come out in the last year or so that's been really on my radar is that you induce HERV proteins in response to COVID infection. And that turns out to be a very predictable biomarker for a COVID-19 infection severity is elevation of HERF proteins. And have you seen any of these data? And do you have any thoughts on how these may be contributing to long COVID symptoms?
2: Okay, yeah, we wrote an editorial on that paper. So they showed HERF-W being activated in macrophages, patients who are severely ill with, with COVID. So the next stage is to see if it's also activated in individuals who have long COVID. And if that's the case, then yes, one can dampen that down. It would be worthwhile seeing if it impacts the course of the disease. Yeah? But again, all these things have to be done in the context of clinical trials.
1: <laughs> yeah, I understand that. And, and it's kind of frustrating because... We talk about the vaccine, for instance, and also these you know, antibody treatments, the monoclonal antibodies, but there may be an argument out there that we use these safe antiretroviral cocktails for HIV that seem to be extremely safe at this point, and should that be part of a COVID therapy? And when you talk about, is it ethical or unethical, it really raises some important questions, doesn't it?
2: Okay, so now there's a little bit of a difference between HERV-W and HERV-K. Ah, okay. In the COVID patients, they showed HERV-W activation, not HERV-K. HERV-W, it's only the syncytin, which is the envelope that is activated. It's not the reverse transcriptase. So the antiretroviral drugs would not be expected to impact the expression of her w.
1: Ah, very good. Okay. I yeah. see that. Okay, so so it's a different part of the retrovirus that's being expressed and not yeah, it's a different one that one
2: will... and just only that part of it can form protein.
1: I see. So th- so there is a possibility of causing other pathologies, but the retroviral therapy ha- would have no effect on that.
2: Yeah, that's good.
1: Okay, that you know this has all been really fascinating and really helped drill down on this. Uh, you mentioned earlier things like testicular cancer, uh, renal cancers that are can be ascribed to specific herbs. Are there or is there increasing evidence that specific herbs may be playing roles in cancers, and are there specific targets that you're aware of that may be you know ultimately maybe retroviral therapies may play a role in addressing those kinds of cancers?
2: So I don't know about antiretroviral therapy in cancer, but what is what the cancer guys are doing is, so for example, with the renal cancer, there's a oncologist here, Richard Childs and at NIH, and he showed that HERV-E is, is activated in, in renal cancer, clear cell carcinoma of the kidney. And what he used that, he said, okay, if it's being expressed, and this is only expressed in with cancer, what you can do is now do T cells that are directed against that retroviral antigen, right? So now what is called CAR T cell therapies is Mm -hmm. the big thing these days in cancer. Mm -hmm. And so now if you can develop these T cells that are going to now precisely go and attack that retroviral antigen, it'll attack only those cells that are, those cancer cells that are expressing it, and maybe that way you can uh, treat that cancer. Yeah, yeah the, uh, so it becomes a tumor antigen of sorts.
1: No, that that makes a lot of sense. We we've talked a lot about CAR T cell therapies on the podcast over the years, oh, okay. and this is you know seems like another really excellent application because those would be antigens that would be expressed strictly in those rapidly proliferating cell types.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, all of this has been really fascinating. I, I are you ever looking for someone to come up there on sabbatical, like a good molecular biologist who really likes to work hard and Maybe do would, podcasts now and then.
2: I'll love to have you there anytime. <laughs> an open invitation, Kevin.
1: I'll tell you, <laughs> I, I am, I am. It just to me as a scientist, this seems like just, just like like, we, like, like scientists like you and some others have hit the pinata, and there's candy on the floor here to pick up. With so many interesting interventions into what are some of the most insidious human diseases, and here's an opportunity for us to maybe to get to the basis of those so if you had to get out your crystal ball and look at what are the therapeutic targets of herbs so the things that may be realistically may be resolved through some sort of either uh, antiretroviral or antibody therapy are there some low hanging fruit that you believe may be diseases or pathologies that may be addressed in the next decade by focusing on the herbs,
2: So my passion really is to try and understand the role of these retroviruses or retroviral genes in neurodegenerative diseases. You know, if you look at the total burden of neurodegenerative diseases for humans on this planet right now, that's the one that's increasing. As lifespan is increasing, so are all the neurodegenerative diseases. Everything we've done so far has failed to treat them. Everything. And I think the reason is that we're fighting against just a very small part of the human genome. That's the protein coding region, which is only 3% of the human genome. While you have all this other part of the human genome that has these retroviral sequences and nobody's ever studied them. I think if one were to study them, you have a whole host of new therapeutic targets and that would open up. And so I, I really think that it, would be very wise for us to invest resources into understanding these viral genes in the context of neurodegenerative diseases and manipulate them. And you can manipulate them not just by antiretroviral, but you have genetic therapies, for example, antisense molecules, adeno associated viral vectors. There are many different ways in manipulating these genes, siRNA and the like. And so, and, and see if you can actually impact these diseases. I think that to me would be the new frontier.
1: <laughs> well, this makes me really happy because I, I feel the same way you do. As people are not dying of pneumonia and heart attacks and the old school things that killed us at 45 or 50, people are living longer and neurodegenerative disease is not just a toll on individuals, but also on families and on society and, and on national health care. It's extremely expensive to, to deal with and treat the long-term degenerative care of people who have healthy hearts and healthy everything else. So this is the next big frontier. So Dr. Vindra Nath, thank you so much for joining me on this. It makes me so happy to talk to you and understand this process better. So thank you.
2: Well, it is such a pleasure. So um, let me leave you with one last thought, Kevin. Okay, one last thought. I love it. So, you know, we make nature very complicated. The rules of nature are very simple. Okay, so if you look at it, the very genes that are important in our existence today, which are, for example, these retroviral genes, you know, you need them for development of all your organs, all that kind of stuff, right? You need them, but then it is the same very things that ultimately take us out in the end, right? They cause cancer and neurodegeneration, they suppress our immune system, and and the like, and so the it is such a simplistic way of thinking about it that we we don't need to think about very complicated mechanisms as to how all these diseases are occurring. And then we never make any kind of headway. But I think if we think in these simplistic terms, we can really understand the existence of human life and what really it's, uh, how it occurs and how it ends. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to uh-huh. me.
1: I, I, I think it, it's a really profound statement that, Maybe we're overthinking this a little bit and that we have to get back to the roots of how does change in development really occur and what are the roots of it? And not just what are the major markers that are easy to find, yeah. but maybe what are these little more hidden and latent things that we've never considered? And you know, we, we, we might join back on the podcast in 10 more years and see the huge role that these latent human endogenous retroviruses play. So, so I don't know. Beautiful. We'll see how it goes. So, well, let's stop there and let me thank all the listeners for being loyal listeners to this weekly podcast. Our numbers have never been better. And I hope that intriguing guests like Dr. Nath really do continue to stoke your ability to be hopeful about the future that biotechnology can bring and your assistance in sharing this podcast with others that may benefit from understanding the hope that previous problems that may be thought to be hopeless maybe can be solved. So this is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at Calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.